Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice! Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more, and I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with with your spirit. 
Amen. Well, good evening, and uh, Esther, thanks so much for reading for us. It's great to have you with us this evening, and um, we're going to spend uh, the next little bit of time together looking at just verses 2 to 9 in that passage, so we won't be covering the whole thing this evening. You'll have to come back next week for the conclusion of the letter, Uh, and um, uh, as we begin, I'm going to, uh, to pray and ask for God's help as we look at this passage together, so let's pray together. Our Lord God, the Bible says that the one you esteem is the one who is humble and contrite of heart and trembles at your word. And so we pray this evening as we come to look at this passage, you would help me to speak and help each one of us to listen and to engage with your word with that right humility in which you delight. We pray that we would meet you here and that you would change us by it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you ever find relationships with other people uh, to be a challenge? I guess specifically, do you ever find relationships with people in the church to be hard work? Uh, I have a book at home. I must confess I haven't read it. It's one of uh, my wife's books, uh, but it's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And it's a good title, an excellent title, and I think I must read it because of the title. But um, uh, it's an excellent title because relationships are often messy and difficult. Uh, You don't have to be naturally hot-headed to find that sometimes other people make you angry. Uh, You don't have to be naturally anxious and worried by disposition to be concerned what someone else will think of you or deeply hurt by a comment that somebody makes. And Christians aren't immune from finding relationships with one another hard. I think of a a church uh, I I was a part of uh, a few years back, and and two women in the church, both keen, both actively involved, both loved Jesus and were going for it in the Christian life, but could barely stand to be in the same room together. They found one another's company so difficult. And you might think, wow, wow. Well, I'm not in that situation. There's no one here I can't stand to be in the same room with. Otherwise, I I wouldn't be here in the same room with them. But if you ever find relationships difficult, if you ever find other people hard, then this evening's passage from Philippians is for you. We're going to be thinking this evening about what difference the gospel makes to our relationships with one another and with the Lord God. A few years ago, uh, a friend tried to persuade me to drive with him to Kazakhstan. And I know know what you're thinking. It's a long way, and it's not the most sensible proposition, but in fairness to him, when we looked on Google Maps, it is basically a straight line from Calais up through Germany, Poland, Russia, and then on to the capital of Kazakhstan. It it didn't look like it'd be too much of a problem. It's about 4,000 miles. Um, Google reckoned about 65 hours of driving. So, you know, it's a long way, but at least it was a straight line. Uh, And it was only when we um, zoomed in Google Maps a bit further that we started to see some of the, uh, the difficulties a bit more up close. And um, there was the borders that we'd have to cross and the difficult terrain and, and the distance between petrol stations along the way. And, um, and, and then there was the reality that I was driving a 12-year-old Nissan Micra at the time. 
And um, listen, in Philippians, Paul has been talking about how the gospel changes our mindset, our attitudes. And he's been painting on a very big canvas. If you like, we've had the, the zoomed out view, the straight line from the gospel to our lives, to our minds, to our attitudes. Paul has said that if you're a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. Your true home is with Jesus Christ in his coming kingdom, and we should grow to reflect that. Paul said that if you're a Christian, you are a gospel partner. You've been made part of the gospel team, striving together to advance the message of Jesus. And um, we've seen the kind of zoomed out big picture so far in Philippians, and it sounds fairly straightforward, straight line, doesn't it? Adopt the mindset of the gospel citizen, the gospel partner, the gospel team member. But here at the end of the letter, what Paul does effectively is to zoom right in on the details of our lives, on our relationships with one another and with the Lord, and to show us what it looks like to apply the the way that the gospel of Jesus changes your mind to those very fundamental relationships. And as he does that, as we get down to the, um, the border crossings and the difficult terrain and all the granularity and detail of our lives, we see quite how searching and challenging it is to take the gospel mindset and apply it daily to our relationships. And so let's tuck in together and see, there's, um, there's encouragement here and great challenge for us, I think. And um, the first, uh, my first heading is this, the gospel mindset changes our relationships with other people. The gospel mindset changes our relationships with other people. Uh, verse two, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. <laughs> and I don't know what you think about this, um, the start to this passage. I feel like it's pretty strong. I mean, it's pretty punchy, isn't it, to write a public letter to be read out to a whole church and then to name two people and tell them to agree with one another. I mean, I'm not going to do it, but if this evening I picked two people in the church family and said, look, here's an application of this passage. You and you need to start getting along better than you are. It's pretty strong, isn't it? It's a pretty bold move. So why, why is it that Paul takes the, um, the relationship breakdown by these women so seriously that he's willing to call them out by name and beg them, plead with them to agree with one another? I mean, look at verse 3. We can see that they have been exemplary gospel partners They've contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, says Paul. And they're clearly real Christians. Paul says their names are in the book of life. Do you get the image? If there was a book that listed all of the citizens of heaven, their names would be written in that book. Real Christians, they have been exemplary gospel partners. And yet Paul publicly pleads with them. Why? Why does it matter so much? Well, verse 2, that phrase, agree with each other in the Lord, is actually a phrase we've seen before in Philippians. 
Uh, if you're going to translate it in a sort of woodenly, literal way, Paul says, be like-minded or be of the same mind in the Lord. It's the phrase Paul used back in chapter 2, verse 2. Why don't you just turn back a page with me? In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And he goes on, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude, your mindset, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Do you see, we don't know the issue between Euodia and Syntyche. Paul doesn't tell us any of the details, although presumably the church in Philippi knew all about it. Notice that Paul doesn't dig into the details of who's done what. He doesn't even take sides. You know, Euodia, sort it out. Syntyche's got the upper hand here, the moral high ground. No, he pleads with both of them to remember who they are in Jesus Christ, to have the common mind of the Christian. Euodia, remember that if you trusted Jesus you've been made one of Jesus' citizens. Syntyche, remember, if you're a Christian, you are a partner, a member of the, the gospel team. And so I plead with you, have that kind of mindset. And you see, this is why it really matters. This is why Paul thinks it's worth calling out to people by name. Because the witness of the gospel is at stake in our relationships as Christians. Uh, I I don't know if you've been enjoying the first week of Wimbledon this week. Uh, It's it's a great tournament, isn't it? I particularly love the singles competitions because everything rests on the shoulder of one person. That one person, will they have the bottle to see it through all the way and win the match? And you see, being a Christian... It is not and can never be like the singles competition at Wimbledon where it all rests on the shoulders of an individual. It's more like something like the, uh, the Women's World Cup or something like that. As a Christian, you are brought together into the gospel team. When you trust Jesus, you are brought together with other Christians to work together for the advance of the gospel together. And so Paul says to these two women, please have the gospel partner mindset. You know, as a Christian, it's it's almost never just about you and Jesus. It's almost impossible to grow as a Christian on your own. It is extremely difficult to bear witness to the gospel on your own. We need each other. And the gospel mindset that Paul has been explaining in Philippians is very helpful for our relationships with one another. Remember, Paul said your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what was Jesus' attitude? Well, we've seen in Philippians 2, he didn't lift himself up, what Paul calls selfish ambition and vain conceit. No, instead, he laid down his life. He humbly sacrificed himself for the spiritual well-being of others. And it's a great question to ask myself 
when I find a relationship difficult with someone. In this relationship, am I serving myself? Am I trying to lift myself up? Or am I willing to lay my life down and humbly sacrifice my, my reputation, my comfort, my well-being for the spiritual good of that other people? Lifting myself up or laying my life down? It's the mindset that when I strongly disagree with someone, rather than firing off the, uh, the email full of flames or, or talking to three or four friends about how wrong they are, quietly approaches the person and says, you know, I could be wrong, but I have some concerns. It's the mindset that says, look, the advance of the gospel is far more important than my being right in the situation the mindset that says when someone says something about me and it hurts, rather than avoiding them or, or looking for the opportunity for a slam-dunk response, I quietly approach them and make myself vulnerable enough to say to them, actually, that really hurt me when you said that, maybe to challenge them. See, Paul says that the gospel mindset must change our relationships with other Christians because the gospel draws us together into a team, to be gospel partners, gospel citizens. And look, if that all sounds a bit simplistic, a bit pat, well, notice that in verse 3, Paul urges another person to help. Verse 3, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women. A yoke fellow there is another image for a partner. It's, um, it's two people stood side by side, yoked like two oxen dragging something along. This partner in the gospel, help these two women, help them out, Paul says. Look, sometimes in relationships, things are just, they're just my fault. And I need to repent and I need to go and apologize to someone. But let's be honest, very often it's more messy than that, isn't it? Very often there's some blame on either side, whether it's 80-20 or whatever, there's some blame or some disagreement about who's at fault. Occasionally there's bullying or abuse and people feel guilty when they don't need to because actually they're the victim. But very often when our relationships are hard, what we need is the humility to talk to someone that we trust and to tell them that we're finding someone hard. To ask them to help us discern our own heart and the way forward in the situation because the gospel matters more than my pride or my self-sufficiency. Paul says that the mindset of the gospel changes our relationships with other people. But secondly, the mindset of the gospel also changes our relationship with the Lord or um, it might be better to say it changes our experience of our relationship with the Lord. Uh, just look again at verse 4 with me. Uh, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And really this verse is at the heart of the whole section. Uh, Paul says twice, rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus. He's already said it at the beginning of Philippians 3. It's key to this letter, this idea of finding your joy in Jesus. Paul isn't saying that you have to wear a kind of stick-on fake smile and whatever you're going through, you have to say to yourself, I am happy, I am happy. 
No, in this letter, he talks about his hardship, his sufferings, his tears. But Paul is saying, make knowing Jesus your first priority so that whatever else is going on with you, you rejoice to know Jesus Christ. In the second half of the passage, there are two big truths about Jesus and three ways that rejoicing in Jesus changes us. Uh, Here are the two big truths. First of all, have a look at verse five, just the end of the verse. The Lord is near. Uh, The Lord is near. Uh, Paul doesn't mean that um, uh, the feeling that God is close to me when he says the Lord is near. He means the fact that Jesus will return soon. Do you see, the Lord is near in the sense that he is near to coming back. He is objectively near. It's what he was talking about back in 3 verse 20 when he said our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there. Do you see, Paul says here is something to rejoice in. Everything that causes you pain, every difficult relationship, everything that makes you want to curl up on the floor and cry and cry until there are no more tears left, he will fix everything that is broken in our world and make all things new and hold every sin accountable when he does it. The Lord is near, Paul says. Rejoice in the fact that he's coming back to fix the world and to have you with him. And then secondly, verse seven, the peace of God. Verse seven, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And again, I don't think that Paul is talking about a feeling of peace here, but again, he's talking about the fact that Jesus has made peace between God and you. Uh, I, was, uh, I was never very good at rugby in school. Um, I, I was um, exceptionally tall and thin, which is definitely not the build that you want in, uh, in fourth-form rugby. And um, there, was another, <laughs> there was another kid in my class called Jamal. And Jamal was the sort of guy who hits his growth spurt about five years before all of the other kids in the county. And he weighed about 16 stone. I mean, he was a, he was a big, strong guy. And I fairly quickly learned that even though I was um, a pretty inadequate rugby player, the one thing to always remember was to get on the same team as Jamal. Because <laughs> if you were playing against Jamal, you would be flattened. And if you were with him, it didn't matter how lanky you were, you'd probably be fine. And listen, I don't want to trivialize it, but the the Bible says that God made everything in the world, that he is all-powerful and holds every life in his hands. And in our foolishness, and our self-centeredness, as human beings, we choose to act as his enemies and play against him. We say, God, I don't need you. I can do life my own way. And it's a disastrous decision to make because if you can't win in a rugby match in fourth form against Jamal, you certainly can't win when you stand up to the living and all-powerful God of the universe. But Jesus Christ laid down his life 
he took on himself our enmity from God. He bore the punishment we deserve and died under a curse on the cross so that we could join God's side, so that we could be at peace with him, no longer standing against him, but playing with him in the gospel partnership, on the gospel team, gospel citizens. And Paul says, when you realize that, when you think about the peace of God, the fact, then it changes everything. Yes, it changes your feelings and your thinking. It guards your heart and your mind. There are three ways that it does that. Three ways it changes your experience of your relationship with the Lord. First of all, verse five, gentleness. Verse five, let your gentleness be evident to all. See, isn't it much easier to be kind to people, to be reasonable and gentle when you are secure in your relationship with God. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says, and you don't need to send off that fiery email. You don't need to make that snide comment. You don't need to stand on your rights because you know that you are deeply loved by your heavenly Father and welcomed into his family. And yes, Jesus will hold that person accountable for what they do. And so you can be gentle from a position of strength. You can be reasonable. Rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, prayerfulness. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. Now, I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only one here who has times when I lie awake at night worried about things and stressing myself with anxiety. And Paul has some very simple advice. Pray about it. Now, actually, he uses three different words, doesn't he, in verse 6? Prayer, petition, and requests. And all three of those words basically mean ask God for stuff. When you're anxious, talk to God about it. Rejoice in the Lord. You know, remember in prayer that the God of the universe is on your side. The most heavy-hitting, all-powerful one, the one with every life in his hands, is for you, is your heavenly Father, if you trust Christ. And more than that, The Lord is near. Jesus is coming back to fix all that is broken. And so you can pray to him. It's one of the things I'm very thankful to my wife, Jess, for. You know, sometimes I'll get home at the end of um, a day and I'll I'll unload all of the things I'm concerned about to her and um, and on and on it will go. And eventually she'll, she'll get a word in and she'll stop me and she'll say, Andy, have you prayed about it? (laughs) and it's that sort of dagger of conviction to the heart because of course I'm not rejoicing in the Lord I'm not remembering that God is at peace with me the God of the universe on my side for me I can bring things to him in prayer and instead I've just, just unloaded them in my anxious mind have I prayed about it 
And Paul says that the antidote for our anxiety is found in rejoicing in the Lord and bringing our requests before him in prayer and thanking him. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Gentleness, prayerfulness. Finally, thoughtfulness. Have a look again at verse eight. Thoughtfulness. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Uh, so often in our, in our struggles with our, our relationships with others uh, or with the Lord, actually the, um, the root of our struggle goes down into our thought life. Now, someone, um, someone frustrates me, you know, they make me really angry. And so I go home and I go over and over it in my mind, increasingly justifying myself, increasingly thinking what I should have said to put them in their place, but never quite did. And Paul says, whatever's true and noble and right, whatever's pure and lovely and admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about Think about those things. Take the gospel and apply that to your mind. Now, when I feel anxious in my relationships with other people and, and I find myself going over and over the situation, worrying about it from ever new angles, finding new ways to feel stressed about it. And again, Paul says, think about what's right and pure and lovely and admirable. Admirable. I was talking to someone this week who, um, who really struggles with anxiety. And they were saying, look, I, I've been learning to, um, to pray about it and to trust God, but, but it's actually quite scary trying not to be anxious about things because I really don't know what I'm going to think about if I don't think about what I'm worried about. And Paul says, here is the answer. What's true, what's noble, what's right, what's pure and lovely. Uh, Someone else was saying to me this week that learning Philippians 4 verse 8 by heart has been one of the key things in their battle with lust in their heart to simply repeat this to themselves and dwell on it. See, I think as Christians, we can be very passive about our minds, Uh, When our homework is done, or the kids are in bed, or we finally get work out of our head for a few hours, we just pull up our minds and park them in somewhere that's familiar and comfortable. And we never stop to think about what we're thinking about. Where do we park our minds? In our anxiety or our anger? Uh, Maybe it's the materialism of a new home, a better holiday, in pride, in lust. Where do we park our minds when we're not thinking about anything else? Because Paul says rejoice in the Lord. The gospel mindset teaches us to be active in what we choose to think about. The great 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, so many of our problems in the Christian life come from listening to ourselves when we should be talking to ourselves. See, we passively listen to the little voice of our mind in our ear rather than preaching the truth of the gospel to ourselves. 
And I think that is what Paul's talking about here. He's not just saying, think about whatever's nice. You know, think about how to be a good person or something like that. Have a look at how he unpacks it in verse 9. Whatever you've learned and received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. See, Paul says, here is the thing that's true and noble and right and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy and worth focusing your mind on. It's the things I've been teaching you in Philippians, he says. It's as we open the Bible, we find the message about Jesus that is full of the true and noble and right, the pure, the lovely, the excellent, the praiseworthy in the biblical truth of the gospel about Jesus. And in the people like Paul, who take the gospel mindset and work it out in their life. And Paul says, think about that. Think about the gospel truth and how it applies to your life and to your mind. Fill your mind with that. Think about Jesus. Listen, this summer, when you're stretched out on a beach and the temperature is far too hot, and you're there sizzling like a strip of bacon with all the other strips of bacon on the beach, there will be time to read that trashy novel. I promise you. But why not get your hands on a book that will take your mind to the truths of the Bible and read that first? Hey, we've got a new bookstall. I'm shamelessly plugging it now. It's just over the way in the church centre. It'll even take your, your card or your Apple Pay. Why not pick something up and park your mind on whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely, whatever's admirable? As the, uh, the winter starts to draw in, I'm sorry to bring you down, but as the summer comes to an end... And everyone is watching that new box set on Netflix. Maybe you could ask yourself, is this where I want to park my mind this evening? Or will I just be thinking about what is untrue and ignoble and wrong and impure and unlovely and dishonorable? The gospel mindset changes our relationships with one another, brothers and sisters. It draws us together into a team. The gospel teaches us to lay down our lives for one another. And the gospel mindset changes our our relationship with our Lord as well. As we rejoice in him, in all his goodness and power. It teaches us to be gentle, to be prayerful, and to be actively thoughtful about our lives. See, it's challenging stuff, isn't it, to go from the sort of the big picture, the straight line across Europe, and to really dig into the details. But it's as we do that that we see what it really means to let Jesus control our minds and our hearts. And so as I, as I finish, I'm just going to give us a couple of minutes. I think we've still got time. It's, it's fairly early in the evening. We've, still, we've got a couple of minutes. Just take a moment and think to yourself quietly. Maybe reread these verses and just think, is there one relationship in my life 
or one area of my life at the moment where I need to take the gospel mindset and put it to work. And then in just a moment, the band are going to come and lead us as we sing.